Well, a good Sunday morning to everybody. We're glad that you are gathered again uh, to worship with us. Let's take time to pray as we open the word of God. Father, it is so good to be with you again in this time of corporate worship, uh, to hear your word, uh, to know your, the presence of your spirit, Lord, uh, to be uh, ministered to by you and encouraged in our walk with you. I pray, Lord, that you would minister to all who are listening to your word this morning, that you would, uh, by your spirit, pour um, healing balm into the cracks of our lives where we need that in the arid, dry places. Uh, Lord God, we pray the ministration, the consolation, the encouragement of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, help us to be attentive today as we look into this psalm. We pray these things in the mighty powerful and saving name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Right there in front of his brothers, David had been anointed with oil by the renowned prophet Samuel. And on that very day, God's spirit had rushed upon David in power Soon after that, David quickly rose through the ranks and he was uh, selected, in fact, as one of Saul's armor bearers. And then not much later, we remember that David very famously and amazingly had struck down the giant Goliath, winning a fantastic victory for Israel. David was the fastest rising star in Israel. Everyone loved him. His exploits uh, were tweeted and retweeted, and his brand uh, was certainly trending. But then there was a song written that began playing all over the ancient Near Eastern airwaves. The song had lyrics that applauded David's great achievements while simultaneously downplaying those of Saul. And Saul lost it. Where Saul had had, up to that point, had had a positive attitude toward David, now that began, began to change in very dramatic fashion. It soon came to the point, in fact, that Saul became obsessed with killing David. And now the spirit-anointed rising star David had to run for his life. The hero was now a fugitive. Eventually, David ended up in a cave in a place called Adulam. And there, David was despondent. There in that cave, the suffering David uttered his cries to God. David lamented. What was God doing? See, David knew that God had anointed him for the kingship in Israel. So why, the question was, why was David now forced into a dark cave, scrounging for food, running for his life? Had God forgotten him? Was God angry with him? Well, the psalm under consideration this morning is Psalm 142. Psalm 142 is a prayer, and more specifically, it is a lament to God. 
And I want you to notice the specific context of this lament to God. The specific context is given to us in the superscription that you'll find in your Bible above, uh, sitting above verse 1. The superscription reads, A maskeel of David when he was in the cave. A prayer. Now, none of us are sure of the meaning of that word maskeel, so we'll leave that aside, but just notice the rest of the superscription. This 142nd uh, psalm is a prayer of David when David found himself in the cave running for his life from a disturbed king named Saul. In this psalm, David laments to God. Uh, David is trying before God, he's trying to connect his present experience of running and hiding and starving He's trying to connect that with the powerful anointing that he had received at Bethlehem. How did these things possibly add up? Well, let's talk for a minute about laments. Tremper Longman says, quote, A lament is a cry uttered when life falls apart. One more time, a lament, says Tremper Longman, is a cry uttered when life falls apart. Tim Keller says that a lament is the prayer, quote, the prayer of someone in suffering and difficulty who is wrestling with God's will, perhaps questioning his ways and seeking help to understand and to endure, close quote. What we need to understand is that in the Bible, people lament to God uh, at considerable length. There's lots of space devoted in Scripture to lament, to voicing complaint to God and protesting to God when it seems like he's not following through on what he had promised. But there's certainly a faith element involved in biblical laments. There is a faith element. When people in the Bible lament, and this is important, they are not just simply sort of venting their pain and then walking away in despair. Instead, they are actually expressing trust in God even as they are voicing their agony to him. There is a faith element, a definite faith element to biblical laments. When we lament, we affirm, yes, my world is spiraling out of control, and I am certainly experiencing the anguish of that. So in other words, we voice our pain. We, in fact, catalog the specifics of our agony, our agonizing experience, but we don't stop there. We also say, my world's spiraling, spiraling, spiraling out of control. However, Lord, I yet trust that you have my world securely in your hands, however painful that world is at the moment. As the biblical authors are lamenting, there is still a high view, a high view and a belief in the sovereignty of God. 
even as they honestly and thoroughly voice their pain, there is faith. J. Todd Billings, in his excellent book, Rejoicing in Lament, he puts it this way, quote, because of their faith in God's sovereignty, the psalmists who lament have high expectations of God. Because they take God's promises seriously, they lament and protest when it seems that God is not keeping his promises. Listen to this. They assume that if God is responsible for blessing, God is also responsible for the lack of blessing. I really like that last sentence one more time. The biblical authors who lament assume that if God is responsible for blessing, God is also responsible for the lack of blessing. Well, with all of that as a, just a very brief and cursory introduction to biblical laments, let's go now to this lament psalm, Psalm 142. We're with David here in the cold, dark cave. He's out of breath. He's tired. He's hungry. He's thirsty. He's feeling quite despondent on the run as he is from a crazed king and the king's henchmen. Verse 1, with my voice I cry out to Yahweh. With my voice I plead for mercy to Yahweh. Now just notice a basic fact here. There are two parties mentioned in this verse. The two parties are David and Yahweh. Those are the two parties in the verse. The psalm is in fact a prayer conversation between David and Yahweh. We should pause for a moment over the fundamental fact that David, how does he respond to his dire situation? He responds by going to God. David's despair drives him to seek Yahweh. This dark moment in his life brings him to cry out to his God, to Yahweh. You know, we might say that one of the fruits, one of the fruits of being afflicted in life is that it can drive us to God. When the bottom falls out of our lives, where else can we go, in fact, but to the one who made us, to God? Now notice as well in this verse the specific way that David communicates his lament to God. Twice here in the verse, David says, with my voice. It's very significant. He says, with my voice, I'm having this conversation with God. With my voice. So David is praying out loud here with his voice. He's not praying silently. He's not whispering this prayer even. He's praying out loud. I really like what John Goldengay says here. He says, quote, When you want to get someone's attention, you do not whisper or just say it inside as if the person were inside you rather than independent of you, existing really and objectively outside you. Close quote. 
David is praying audibly, out loud, to the God who exists outside of him. You know, sometimes praying to God out loud is the only way to really release pent-up feelings. Praying silently during those times just doesn't quite match the intensity of what you're feeling. I know I've done that before. Praying out loud in the car or out in the forest or or wherever you are. Let's go to verse 2. David says, I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. You know, it's easy for us, in fact, I think it's almost automatic for some of us, to pour out our complaint, to tell our trouble to people around us, right? And of course, there can be some value in that, for sure. We can receive godly um, empathy from other people. We can receive godly counsel also from fellow believers when we are in a place of real pain in our lives. But of course, when we pour out our complaint before people, if that's where we automatically run, we also run the risk of having somebody respond to our pain with no empathy or with fake empathy. Or we run the risk of having somebody respond to us with uh, bad advice or with unsolicited advice. Or maybe they will respond to us in a way that further hurts us even. Notice very well here that David goes directly to God. He goes to God out loud with his voice. David audibly pours out his complaint to God. David goes to God and, and he tells God his distress. I wonder, have you done this? Have you fallen to your knees before God and uttered out loud with some intensity your helplessness. The fact that you are overwhelmed in life, struggling intensely maybe, or despairing in your life. Have you gone to God and expressed all of your feelings and the things that are are hanging you up? You know, it's a lot of work to keep it all bottled up inside. It's actually not healthy to do that. And so this verse is inviting us, in fact, it's beckoning us to pour out our complaint to God and to tell him our trouble, to get specific before God with the things that are crippling us, the things that are making us wince in our lives, the things that are hindering us and making us upset. And of course, it's not that God needs this information, right? God knows every detail already. He knows the end result of all of it in a way that you and I can't see. But there is relief for us that comes when we uncap the bottle, so to speak, and let the pressure release and pour out our complaint and our distress to the God who listens. I love the words of Charles Spurgeon on this very point. Spurgeon said this, quote, It is for our relief and not for his information that we make plain statements concerning our woes. It does us much good, listen to what he says here, much good to set our sorrow in order, 
I love that, to set our sorrow in order, for much of it vanishes in the process like a ghost which will not abide in the light of day, and the rest loses much of its terror because the veil of mystery is removed by a clear and deliberate stating of the trying facts. Close quote. That's Spurgeon. Well, friend, I would say to you, if right now, right now, you are feeling the need to do this, to pour out your complaint to God, to tell him your trouble, if the Spirit is urging you in this way, then don't delay for a second further. Turn this sermon off right now, in fact, and go to prayer. And you can always come back and pick up on it later if you want to hear the rest. Okay, if you're still with us, let's go now to verse 3. David says, listen to what he says, When my spirit faints within me, when my spirit faints within me, you, Lord, know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Now, let's talk about the verb near the beginning of this verse, the, the verb faints. When my spirit faints within me. What's David describing here? He's describing the weakness that he felt. This is a description of how David was feeling exhausted, how he was feeling overwhelmed with what life was throwing at him. And in fact, in both the King James Version and in the New Living Translation, they've used the word overwhelmed here. When I am overwhelmed. Many of us know what it is to feel overwhelmed with life. Smothered by difficulties, exhausted with troubles, near fainting under the emotional load of life. Well, when David was experiencing that sort of misery, and he was really and actually experiencing this, as he experienced that, I want you to take careful note here of what he says. He says, when my spirit faints within me, you know my way. You, Lord, know my way. When I am overwhelmed with trouble, when I'm in a despondent frame of mind, you know my way. And here, friends, we have really what is the first glimmer of faith in Psalm 142. God knows our way. When we are sinking in despair, the depths of despair, and I think here there's a double meaning. First of all, when, when, when he says, you know my way, there's a double meaning. First, the way that God knows when we are in the thick of trouble is the way of the trouble itself. All the details and difficulty and agony of the troubles themselves. God knows that. But second, God also knows the way or the path forward for us, the way out. You know my way. Friend, if right now you are in the thick of trouble, the pain of suffering, you need to know that your God knows all the specifics of it. God is not oblivious in any way 
concerning every single detail of your situation. In fact, he knows much more about it than you do. He knows your way. Nothing about the painful road that you're on has taken God by surprise. Nothing about your distress has been hidden from the sight of God. This agonizing thing in your life, whatever it is, it doesn't matter what it is, this agonizing thing that you would not have chosen for yourself in a billion years, this thing falls within the wise and good design of God, even though you cannot see that right now. It falls within his wise and good and providential plan for you. He knows your way. And he is true and good and faithful and wise and holy and loving. David talks in this verse about his adversaries laying a trap for him. Well, hunters lay traps They were hunting David to kill him, and they had laid some sort of trap or snare for him. We don't know what the trap was, but whatever it was, it was designed to overcome David and to kill him. But again, David's God knew David's way. God knew the path that would lead David away from the danger, and David here is simply confessing. In faith, he's confessing that fact. God, you know my way. In verse 4, David details more of what he was suffering as he sat in the cave. He says here out loud to God, remember he's speaking out loud, praying out loud. He says, look to the right and see. He's talking to God, look to the right and see. Are you looking, Lord? Lord, normally on my right, there would be trusted counselors. There would be people who defend my cause. There would be supporters who would go to bat for me. But, David says, you can see, Lord, that there is none who takes notice of me, he says. There are none who uh, give regard to me, is what David is saying here. None who offer support to me, he says. No refuge remains to me. No refuge remains to me. My shelter is non-existent. I'm out in the open. I'm vulnerable. Whatever security I had in the past has simply vanished. No one, he says, cares for my soul. No one cares for my soul. The basic theme of verse 4 is, Lord, nobody wants anything to do with me. I'm isolated. I'm alone. I feel vulnerable. Whatever friends I had in times past have forsaken me. David was in dire straits. But verse 5. I cry. Who does David cry to? I cry to you, O Yahweh. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. David is saying, I'm in a place where nobody wants anything to do with me, where no one is offering any support to me, where I am alone and I'm isolated and I'm feeling vulnerable. Where else shall I go now but to you, O Lord, I cry to you. 
Can you see, friend, how severe trouble in your life can have the blessed result, the blessed result of driving you directly to the feet of the Lord? It is a giant blessing for us to be driven to the Lord at any point in time in our life. David, in his great affliction, is driven to the Lord. He's on his knees and he's crying out. And here David cries, You are my refuge. As Charles Spurgeon points out here, David does not say, Lord, you have provided a refuge for me. Instead, David says, Lord, you are my refuge. David, in his extremity, in his agony, he's expressing to God his dependence on God. David is expressing the safety he has in God. You, God, are my refuge. See, human help had failed in David's life, but God, God himself, was David's refuge. When other helpers fail and comforts flee, help of the helpless, oh, abide with me. And David says here to God, you are my portion. You are my portion in the land of the living, my portion in the land. When the promised land was portioned out to the tribes of Israel, the tribe of Levi did not receive a portion. But God said to them in Numbers 18 verse 20, I am your portion. So David is like the tribe of Levi here. He has no portion in the land, no security in the land as he's running from cave to cave. He's a fugitive with no permanent address. The Lord himself is David's refuge, his portion. The Lord himself is David's allocation. He is David's security, David's inheritance, David's home. You are my portion. Verse 6, David says to God, Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Sometimes we become convinced that God is not listening to us, and so we beg him to listen. Attend to my cry. Now in verse 1, and again in verse 5, we had the word cry already, at least in English, and now again we have the word cry in verse 6. But here in verse 6, the Hebrew word behind the translation cry, the Hebrew word is different than it was in both verse 1 and in verse 5. Here in verse 6, the word is stronger. The root of the word here in verse 6 means to yell. To yell. When David says here, attend to my cry, what he's actually saying is, attend to my loud shouting. Attend to my resounding wailing. See, David is in a very desperate place here. The circumstances that he was living through were so threatening that he was yelling. 
wailing, lamenting with a raised voice to God. I wonder, friend, have you been there? Do you identify with this? And he says here, I am brought not just low, but very low. Get the picture of where David was at as he's penning this psalm. Get the picture. This is the great David who had slain Goliath. But now, not long after that moment, here David is crying out, pleading for mercy, verse 1, his spirit fainting within him, overwhelmed with life, verse 3, feeling utterly isolated and alone, verse 4, and now in verse 5 we find him wailing loudly and talking about at being uh, at a very low point. This one who had slain Goliath now felt close to being completely ruined. And he says further to God here, Deliver me from my persecutors, from those who are pursuing me, for they are too strong for me. This is the mighty David who had stood up to that intimidating, very fearsome giant. And now David feels feeble. David feels weak and he's, he's being hunted here. He's being driven into caves by the crazy king of Israel, Saul. But what does weak David do? What do we do when we feel utterly wiped out? As believers, we still cling in faith to God's ability. Deliver me, is the prayer of David here. Deliver me. David is affirming his belief that God alone can help him in this crazy situation that he finds himself in. Deliver me. That's a prayer of faith. And it's a confession of the ability of God. Verse 7, the final verse of the psalm, Bring me out of prison that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. Now, when David here mentions being in prison, what's he talking about? Well, he's using metaphorical language here. The the prison that David found himself in was the isolation that he talked about in verse 4. The prison was the desperate situation that he's been talking about throughout the entire psalm, and perhaps the cave itself felt like a prison to David as well. He dare not move too far from the cave or Saul uh, would spot him and capture him. But in faith, what does the despondent David say here? He says, bring me out, Lord. That's his prayer to God. Bring me out. You have the ability, Lord, to do this. Bring me out and I will give thanks to your name. Lord, if you take your keys and you unlock my prison door and let me be freed, be liberated, I will be so thankful I will not be able to stop praising your name. Again, Charles Spurgeon says here, quote, he who is delivered from the dungeons of despair is sure to magnify the name of the Lord. 
Yes. When Israel, uh, when they were desperate, when they were backed up right to the sea, staring down Pharaoh's army as Pharaoh's army was advancing toward them and certain death was imminent, when they were in that dire, anxious situation, only to have God deliver them by parting the sea and drowning Pharaoh's army, what did Israel do right after that miracle? They praised God. Exodus chapter 15. They could not help but sing God's praise after that stunning deliverance that he had orchestrated all by himself. Again, the words of Spurgeon, I think, are so appropriate. He who is delivered from the dungeons of despair is sure to magnify the name of the Lord. And David here in verse 7 envisions a time down the road when, when after he'd been delivered, when God-fearing people would gather around him as he proclaimed the goodness of God toward him, how God had delivered him out of his trouble. The righteous will surround me, he says. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. There would be this sweet time of fellowship with the saints, this time when they would be encouraged as they listened to David tell the story of how God delivered him out of his very dire situation in such a mighty way. It would be a time of great praise amongst the saints of God. Isn't it interesting, friends, and pretty profound, I think, that our psalm began with crying, I cry out to Yahweh, but it ends with thanksgiving and praise. In the words of Robert Somerville, this psalm turns from a dirge to a dance, from a lament to a joyful shout. Yes, indeed. The sun comes out, so to speak, as we reach the final verse of the psalm. There is a movement in the psalm from dark clouds to sunshine. And this can be a great encouragement to us, this movement. Well, friends, who is the ultimate singer of Psalm 142? The ultimate singer of Psalm 142 is, of course, the greater David, our Lord Jesus Christ. Just as David had been hunted by Saul, who had intent to kill David, so the greater David, Jesus, was hated and hunted down until finally his death was imminent. The night before he was crucified, Jesus sat in anguish. Just as David in our psalm said that his spirit fainted within him and that he had been brought very low, so Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane said out loud with his voice, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. The greater David Jesus Christ in Gethsemane was crying out 
like his human ancestor had cried out in Psalm 142. And just as David had complained in verse 4 that everybody had effectively abandoned him, it was the same with the great greatest descendant of David, our Lord Jesus. In his darkest hour, we remember, his disciples fled from him. And from the cross, the greater David, as he's on the cross, he pours out his complaint to God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And according to Mark 15, 34, it was with a loud voice, it says in the text, almost with a yell that Jesus did that, just like David in verse 6 of our psalm, attend to my cry, attend to my shout of desperation. The ultimate singer of Psalm 142 is the greater David, our Lord Jesus Christ. But, but just as David knew, he knew in his despair that God was yet there. Just as David knew that God could still be reached in prayer, even when he was at his lowest ebb, David knew that God's presence remained even in the darkness, so Jesus all through Gethsemane and all through his hour of the cross, what do we find? We find Jesus praying to the Father, depending on the Father, clinging in faith to the Father. In the midst of his darkest hour, the undercurrent for Jesus was what he had said in John 16, 32, when he said, I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Well, David had pleaded with God in verse 7 to be brought out of his prison. And how did it turn out for David? Well, it turned out that God did wonderfully amazingly deliver David from his situation with Saul. As we know, David went on to sit firmly on the throne of Israel and expand the territory of Israel. What about the greater David? Well, the hour of darkness for Jesus included his dying on the cross and being buried in a tomb. But what did God do? God delivered him from his prison on the third day. Jesus rose from the dead, and right now, even as we preach and as you listen, Jesus, the risen Jesus, is with us. Jesus is ministering to us right now by his word. As Hebrews says, Jesus was heard because of his reverence. My Christian friends just before I take a few weeks of rest here, I want to leave you with this. It's because we follow the greater David, who was a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. It's, it's because we follow Jesus, who walked through his hour of great darkness. It's because we follow him that we too we'll experience our own cave experiences. 
our own seasons of pain in this life. But I want you to listen. It's because of the dark hour that Jesus traveled through on the cross that you and I as believers now have open access to God so that in those times of distress, we can pray Psalm 142 boldly to God and he will hear our cries of desperation. Friend, it's because of the darkest hour of Jesus, the cross, that we have been given access to the throne of God with our prayers. Hallelujah. He was forsaken that we might be brought near. My brother, my sister in Christ, are you right now in a time of desperate need or great sorrow? Then, with confidence... Draw near to the throne of grace that you may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 4.16 Draw near to God with your loud cries and affirm to him that he is your refuge, he is your help. And even in your dark times, remember always that God is mighty to save. Amen.